Welcome on in, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the Jones Report. Tyler Jones here with you. So glad to have you with us today. Coming up here in just a few minutes, going to be joined by Ryan Black of the Manhattan Mercury. He is the sports editor of that newspaper up there in Manhattan, Kansas. He covers all things K-State and Big 12, but uh, he's a big NASCAR fan as well, so we'll get his thoughts on the Daytona 500 and look ahead to the rest of of the NASCAR season ahead when he joins us coming up in just a little while from right now. Making his triumphant return this week is Thomas Bridges after a week off. And uh, Nolan filled in for Thomas last week as we were live down in Daytona. And uh, much to Thomas's dismay, Nolan filled in with Tom Fullery with entertainment news suggesting that Jennifer Aniston should get back together with Brad Pitt. And Tom, with you... Taking back your royal throne, I imagine that won't be taking place, that type of discussion, again later in today's show. No, Nolan, you know, filled in on that, and, you know, you do what you can. You do what you can, but to make up for that, we're going to, I'm going to just have to pull out an outrageous tomfoolery today. We might, we might, Jones, we might mess around and talk Billy Donovan even. Oh, and I know you love talking you know, about Billy we, Donovan. We, 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 we might get to that point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that should be uh, something else. That's quite the tease for later on. So we'll look forward to that. That'll be at the end of the show today. And uh, plenty to discuss here on the Jones Report. Had a great time in Daytona Beach. Tom, I did not get to stay for the finish of the race. That's the question I've been asked by about everybody and their mother the last couple of days. Well, did you stay for Monday? Did you see all that? And I'm like, no, I, I had a flight that was in a position where I couldn't reschedule it. I was pretty much stuck with that 9.30 flight out of Orlando to KC. But I'm kind of glad I didn't stay for the finish of that Daytona 500, that when I left, everything was just great. Other than the rain, everything else was just fantastic. Of of the pre-race ceremonies, President Trump there, did an awesome job with that speech before the race and giving the command to fire engines. Love or hate the guy, it was just so cool to have the president in that building and to see the beast make that run around the track before the race. That was the first time I've ever seen Air Force One in the air and get to see it fly over the track. All of that was just so cool. Uh, such an incredible experience. The rain, it sucked. I'm not going to lie. That did... Uh, you know, make me a little sad, but I did get home in time to see the finish of the entire race. And Tom, I am so thankful, and I'm sure you are too, that Ryan Newman is okay. That that crash was one of the worst I've ever seen. And the fact that he was not responsive, that everybody was in that somber attitude, somber feel, um, that was a situation where I was saying to myself, you know what? It's not a necessarily a terrible thing that I'm not at this right now because this does not feel right something is very bad here something's very wrong it was hours before we heard anything and sure enough Newman is okay he's walking again there was a great photo and some videos of him walking with his daughters and everything all of that is fantastic but I sat there at home like many other people out there Tom and I thought we had lost Ryan Newman I thought that we were talking about the first death in the sport in any of the top three series in 19 years since Dale Sr. passed away. But fortunately, uh, Newman lives to see another day, and the uh, answers to prayer were certainly answered uh, with 
what was just an awful crash, uh, to say the least, on a Monday night. A scary scene there. Yeah, that is one of the worst wrecks. And, uh, you know, it had not been, you know, clipped by whoever clipped in. You know, it happens all the time. Um, so it's not like it was obviously intentional to do that. But, and I mean, besides that, Jones, and, and you obviously watch more NASCAR than I do, I'm, I'm more in it for the last 10 laps uh, than anything. It's kind of like <laughs> baseball for me. But um, that being said, that was one of the better finishes to a race that I've seen. Like, I mean, if that doesn't end in a Ryan Newman crash where we thought he was pretty much dead, um, then, I mean, that that would have capped off a, a great ending to a race. Oh, I mean, yeah. That, was that race. Down, you want to talk about down to the wire. That race, Tom, was fantastic. That is one of the best Daytona 500s I've ever seen from start to finish. Uh, it was just incredible. Going to double overtime, having to explain to folks that, yes, NASCAR does have overtime. It was just electric. And with the ceremonies and everything that happened the day before, everything was just great. And then this happens, and my goodness, that just changed everything. Denny Hamlin all of a sudden doesn't get to celebrate his victory, and... There was some confusion there towards the end. He was kind of celebrating, but he had no idea what was going on, and he got ripped for that. That's not his fault. There was miscommunication there. Once he found out, they backed things down a lot, and we're thinking about Ryan Newman there. Anything going after Hamlin, I felt, was just unjust in that situation, Tom. Yeah, it is pretty unjust. I mean, you know, you don't. I mean, wrecks at the end of races happen a lot, and, you know, maybe he didn't know the extent of it. You're in the moment, too, and you just get out of a tight race where your heart's probably going 90 to nothing, and, I, you know, you're finally getting to breathe, and you're thinking, whew, you know, finally, you know, back first first time a driver's been back-to-back Daytona 500 winners in a long time, I'm sure. Um, and then that happens, and then, I mean, you're caught up in the moment. I mean, I don't know why, you know, it's, uh, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. The fake outrage is honestly a little ridiculous. Everybody's got to find something to be mad at. And, you know, I'm sure once he figured out, Oh, like, Oh, shit, like, you know, he's not getting out of the car. He's not okay. Then that's, you know, that's when you're like, Oh, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. And, and they did that. And so it's, it's the fake outrage. We talked about a couple of weeks ago. Everybody's got to find something to be mad at. It's ridiculous. Yeah, um, indeed. And you know, Denny and Joe Gibbs, they're not monsters. They're good people. Once they knew what was going on, everything's backed down a bit. But with that being said, the, the Newman crash, Tom, I feel like in NASCAR in particular, and in racing as a whole, we kind of take those wrecks for granted. Everybody kind of sits at home and they want to see exciting finishes. They want to see guys do the bump and run and all that. And we just assume that they're going to walk away, that everything's going to be okay because we've seen it so many times before. You think about Dale Earnhardt's crash back in 2001. I could name a number of crashes since then that have been a whole lot worse than Dale Earnhardt's crash, and everybody just walked away. They were okay. That Austin Dillon crash back in 2015 in July at Daytona was one of the absolute worst wrecks I've ever seen, and he just walked away from it. Just unbelievable. And so... With that being said, we, we've been spoiled in these circumstances to enjoy the exciting racing, but yet to still still see those big moments and then just expect those guys to walk away. That was kind of a reality check to say, you know what, as safe as this sport has gotten, it's still not completely uh, bulletproof, that it's not 
you know, a situation where you can just avoid death altogether. Um, it's still got to be something It reminds us that that's in the back of our minds that these guys' lives are still on the line every time they hop in a race car. Yeah, the Dylan wreck, uh, to, to highlight that even more, that was one of the worst ones. There, it, uh, honestly, a miracle that he walked out of that because there was literally nothing left of that car. And after he hit the catch fence the way he did, uh, I mean, the whole freaking engine went into the catch fence. And it just—it blows my mind. Even the—it's—it's—it's it's, it's odd, you know, big wrecks like that, and they walk away all the time. But then you have the—you know—a smaller wreck that might not seem bad end up with the worst injuries. It's kind of kind of crazy, really. Yeah, it is. Uh, I had a great time. Uh, Nolan was out there. We still have evidence, Tom, that he exists. I know that you've uh, questioned. You met his mom. I did meet his mother. Uh, very nice lady. Her name Lisa, just like my mom, and uh, she's very much just like him. And uh, we had a great time, and uh, <laughs> definitely enjoyed it. Uh, see, seeing them and uh, hanging out with them, and, and met all sorts of people out there. I finally, Tom, I finally met Morty Smith of ESPN, and what a guy that is! You want to talk about genuine? What you see on TV is exactly what you get. What I expected out of Marty Smith was the same exact person uh, that he portrays himself to be. Not fake at all. Uh, I mean, one of, the, one of the best out there. One of my favorite people to watch on ESPN, no matter what he's doing, whether it's covering college sports or NASCAR, golf, you name it, uh, Marty's one of the best out there. Yeah, that is that is refreshing here, and you don't always usually get that. I saw that you met Marty, and I thought, man, that's – you know, you've met a lot of cool people, obviously, but uh, yeah, Marty, man, uh, he's kind of one of those guys that almost tops the list. It's kind of like one of those guys you just want to take fishing. Right. Oh, I would love to go fishing with Marty. He did his radio show. Here's where I got jealous, Tom. On Saturday, I was doing my radio show from the, uh, the Fan Zone stage, which was really cool. Don't get me wrong. That was cool that they had me do the show on stage and basically perform in front of a live audience. That was great. But... Marty, he and Ryan McGee, another guy I know that uh, that I ran into this weekend, who's also just a, a rock star, great reporter, does a great job no matter what he covers. He and Marty, uh, Marty and McGee, they did their ESPN radio show on the SEC Network uh, on one of those boats at ta- at uh, at Daytona on the lake that's in the infield, Lake Lloyd. So they were sitting there on the boat doing their radio show, and they had guys like Chase Elliott and a couple others come on their radio show while it was going around on this fishing boat there at Daytona. So cool. Yeah, next year, I'm, I'm going to try to go next year with you guys, and what we'll do, we'll just, I'll just take a road trip instead and load my car up with a big, like, four-person kayak or something, and we'll just do it on <laughs> – we'll do the show on the kayak. <laughs> <laughs> but I like that. We'll, we'll find a way to rent a pontoon boat and get it out there. I like that. Uh, ran into Dave Portnoy of uh, Barstool Sports and his gang, and uh, I met Dave last year, and now he's a big NASCAR fan, and he's got a new podcast that launched this week with uh, Clint Boyer to talk uh, NASCAR and such. And uh, so it was good to see Dave and in the Barstool gang. And uh, here's a little inside baseball time. So the big promotion for Daytona with Dave was that he was going to bring his Uber driver, Debbie. And uh, Debbie, who in her own right is just hilarious. Uh, She's appeared in some of those pizza review videos and everything. And uh, Debbie shows up 
to uh, Daytona with Dave, and they're just taking the place over by storm. It's hilarious. And then, uh, what do you know, shortly after uh, Dave shows up to the racetrack, out of nowhere, Tom, and I was there to witness all of this. I just happened to be walking by. Dave's dad, Mike Portnoy, shows up out of nowhere unannounced. Um, didn't tell Dave he was coming. And Mike does some stuff on Barstool. Uh, he's an on-air talent. And it was just hilarious to see the genuine reaction of Dave. Like, what What are you doing here? Uh, of his dad surprising him and showing up for the race and, and getting totally caught off guard. Uh, that was uh, something where it was a, a real Barstool moment. But I was getting to see it play out in uh, in actuality uh, in uh, in real time. A real bar stool moment. That's uh, that could be a lot of different things, honestly, especially with Dave. But <laughs> yeah, that is pretty cool. We got to meet Debbie. Debbie's one of those people that I mean, just, that's that's the craziest part about it. I, I mean, just seemingly normal person, normal Uber driver. And then you get Dave hops in your Uber one day, takes a liking to you, and then you go to the Daytona 500. That's about as crazy as meeting some guy on Twitter. Yeah, when he's 15 that does a radio show. Right, exactly. And uh, <laughs> and, we, and we've gone to some big places too um, it, it, over the years as well. And uh, you'll finally make it out to Daytona next year uh, as uh, Jones and Tom take Daytona. Uh, looking forward to that uh, when that comes around. I didn't get to meet President Trump. Uh, I didn't expect that to happen. But I can tell you, Tom, just firsthand, uh, seeing, because I, I barely got to see from a distance President Trump and, and Melania, and uh, President Trump, he looks a little less orange in person, and Melania Trump, who I already thought was pretty hot, oh my gosh, like, she was uh, she was on fire at, at Daytona, I'll be honest. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. You know, it, been, it would not have surprised me if you were... Uh, in that, uh, in that, in that beast going around the track, I would not have been shocked if you, you'd have been like, "Okay, well, we're just riding here and the beast around the track." I was waiting for a Twitter video to pop up. To be honest, so it, I was every time we talk about NASCAR, every time I always go back to Kansas City, and that you know they're like, "All right, well, you can't get in here," and you know you just were like, "Oh yeah, we'll just go around this way," and so I was fully expecting <laughs> you. To uh, somehow weasel your way in. No, and, I, <laughs> no, end up doing that. Lines, I'm like, all right, I'm waiting for it. There's certain lines I won't cross, and armed secret service with AR-15s is one of those. Yeah, I figured as much. I thought, well, if you can weasel your way into that, we're gonna we're we're signing you up for the FBI or the CIA. We're gonna make you a spy. Yeah, I'm not if ready. You can somehow pull that off. I'm not ready for life or death situations. Uh, that's <laughs> not quite worth it. Uh, but. A uh, good time, nonetheless, uh, there at Daytona Beach, and uh, despite not getting to stay for the rest of the race, and uh, planning to go some more races this year, Tom. I'm looking at maybe the Indy 500 uh, is possible, and maybe some others. We'll see what uh, comes up, but a uh, good start. Had a great time there, and looking forward to what is to come the rest of the way. With that being said, uh, it's time for our Big 12 breakdown. What a game coming up on Saturday between KU and Baylor, the number three team in the country in the Kansas Jayhawks and the number one team in the country, the Baylor Bears. Baylor is riding a 23-game winning streak. They are 24-1 and on the season. And not to mention when these two teams faced earlier this year in Lawrence, Baylor defeated KU by double digits. This team's legit. I can't believe how well this Baylor team has played. 
And just to give you perspective just how historically good this Baylor team is, this run that they're on right now, any other year with KU's record of just having one loss in conference play, they would be sailing through their way of winning the Big 12 regular season title probably by about three or four games. But this Baylor team is so good, not losing a game yet in conference play, that if KU loses on Saturday, their chances of winning a Big 12 title outright and maybe even sharing a title with Baylor are pretty much out the window at this point in time. We we need to step back a second, Tom, and just just soak it all in, realize how good this Baylor team really is. Yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. And, and honestly, with the coaching job that Scott Drew has done uh, this year and all those young guards, I wouldn't be surprised if Michael Jordan uh, makes a call to Waco and, <laughs> and ends up snatching up Scott Drew for the Charlotte Hornets in the same way that the Carolina Panthers did <laughs> with uh, Matt Rule. Just don't uh, Br- just mean, don't hire uh, John Beeline. Yeah, 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 exactly. There you go. Uh, but yeah, it's it's honestly shocking. Um, I mean, not to take it away, you know, anything away from what job they've done. But if you would have told me at this point, you know, when the season started, that Baylor would be the number one team in the country with only one loss, uh, I would I would have laughed. Um, again, not to take anything away, but I mean, just what they've done this season has kind of been unprecedented. It has. It has been very impressive what uh, this Baylor team has done at this point in time to be in this position that they are. Uh, undefeated in conference play, Tom, usually this late in the year, if a team is undefeated in their conference or has only one loss, we usually are looking at them as a mid-major, a Gonzaga or a San Diego State. Uh, you know, that type of team is usually the ones that we're talking about with being in that position with those records. Baylor has faced a gauntlet of a schedule. Their non-con includes wins against Butler, Villanova, and Arizona. And then the Big 12, as loaded as it is with wins against Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas Tech, West Virginia, you name it, up and down the line, this is not a fluke the season that Baylor is having. They have been through the best of the best at this point. Yeah, they really have. I mean, it's it, I mean, Big 12 is in and out every year, one of the best conferences if not the best. Uh, and Baylor, you know, while they've had their tests for sure, they've I mean, they've passed every single one of them, uh, whether that be, you know, down by 10 to, uh, you know, a middle-of-the-pack Big 12 team and then, you know, coming back with three minutes left to go. Uh, I mean, to outright blowing the doors off people. Um, so, I mean, they've passed every test they put in front of them, and, it's it, again, it's been ridiculously impressive. It has. And you look at their close games that they've played. I've heard from some people around saying, well – Is Baylor really that good? They're not blowing out people like they used to, whatever. Here's the thing. Here's what I take away, Tom. I'd be curious what you think. This is where I feel like this Baylor team is that good. This is why I believe in this Baylor team. On their off day, they're still finding ways to win. Sure, it may not be pretty. It may not be a double-digit win. You might be only beating Oklahoma by four points back on January 20th, or you might be playing tight games with Oklahoma State, 
or you know hanging around with Texas, only scoring 52 points. I mean, you, you go up and down the line. Sure, they've had some close games, but here's the deal. You can't play your best every single night, but great teams still find ways to win on their off nights. And to me, that's what I take away from this Baylor team is that throughout this season, they have still found ways to win even when they've struggled. Yeah, and that's the you know that's the most important. Like, especially going into uh, March Madness, you know, I mean, you as a coach or you know as just a team, you want you don't want to necessarily blow the doors off of every. Sure, I mean, sure you do want to just blow out everybody you play. I mean, that would be great, but uh, you know, in real life actuality, I mean, you're not going to do that, and it really you know determines the mark on how great your team is when you can play close games and come out and still win those to show that grit and Baylor sure has a hell of a lot of grit. Yeah. Grit's the uh, perfect word for describing this Baylor team. And, and the other thing too, is that they do it with several different bodies involved. I think Tom, that's one thing that I really like about this bunch is that it's not about just one guy for this Baylor team. Uh, leading them in scoring right now is a Butler who's averaging about 16 points a game Teague, also in that backcourt, is averaging about 14, and then Mitchell is averaging about 10 points, and then uh, Jalipsy is averaging about 10 points as well, and uh, Bando is averaging about 8 points per game. And I think one of the big problems that you look at when facing this Baylor team of why they're such a bad matchup is that on any given night, any of those guys could step up, that it's not just about one player. You have to defend all five positions. Right, they're so good all around, especially their guard play has just been outstanding. And, and Jones, I believe those guards that you mentioned, I believe they're all sophomores. And maybe maybe one of them is even a true freshman. I'm not exactly sure on that for sure. But I know they're a younger team, which makes it all that more impressive. And just looking at who they have redshirted, I mean, this Baylor team is set for years to come. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, they're not going away. Uh, this uh, young team that they have. Teague's a junior and uh, Butler's a sophomore. And then uh, Gillespie, uh, their star forward, he's a senior. He'll be gone. But you, you have some key pieces. You have some youth on this Baylor team that's going to be back that may not be ready for the NBA just quite yet that will have their names called eventually, but they'll be back with the Baylor Bears next season. So this team is ready to go for quite some time. And you have this matchup against Kansas, Tom. Kansas uh, playing this Baylor team who – um, you know, the last time around, KU was toe-to-toe with the Bears, and then Devon Dotson gets hurt, and that kind of changed things for KU. They really just were not the same in that second half without Dotson, and they ended up losing that game at home by double digits. You get Dotson back, I feel like for KU to beat this Baylor team, KU is going to need to play an A game, an A performance. And the Jayhawks have played some really good ball themselves. They're on quite the winning streak. I've lost track now how many games they've won in a row. They haven't lost since they lost to Baylor back in January. And so for this KU team, Tom, I think you have to play an A game, and those guards have to outplay those Baylor guards. You need Dodson, you need Garrett, Ochai, Brown, all those guys have to step up and play better than Butler and Teague and Mitchell and that backcourt of uh, Baylor. It's going to be a battle, I think, coming down to these backcourts here. 
Yeah, definitely is. And, and you mentioned Kansas has to play an A game. They for sure do. Maybe even an A-plus game. Um, just because you don't have the fog to back you up. You're going to Waco this time. We talked about it you know, back in January that, hey, we knew this game. We've talked about this game before, this game coming up for KU and how important it is. Uh, not only, you know, for, you know, a chance to, to even share the, the Big 12 title with Baylor, but to just to almost like a, I don't know even what word to call it, like a grit test, essentially, going into March Madness. This is like your, uh, this is like practicing for the marathon uh, before the marathon, if, if that makes sense. Um, I mean, this is, this is K pretty much their last big one. You know, where, I mean, in all reality, uh, in a crazy world, we could see this game played again, uh, not only in the Big 12 tournament, but uh, where, you know, at that point, not a whole lot to play for. Uh, well, I mean, I say, but, um, you know, we've seen it before happen where, I mean, could you imagine if it was KU Baylor showed up again in March? I don't think I mean, that's how crazy that would be. I don't think it's a crazy idea that they could face in the Final Four or the national championship because here's the thing about this Saturday's game, Tom. I think that both teams are in great shape to be one seeds, no matter what the outcome is. This, to me, feels like a kind of a pride game. If the Big 12 title is on the line here, but just because you lose this game, it's not going to be a bad loss. Everything is still there for you to win the league uh, ahead if you if you come out with this victory here. So uh, it, it's that pride of winning the Big 12, and in you know in KU's case, not getting swept by Baylor. That's at stake here more than anything. Uh, it's not about uh, necessarily seeding because both these teams are in good shape. Oh, yeah, for sure. It is It is like a pride game. And, you know, KU's had the, had the you know, had their hearts set on the Big 12 title coming back after last year. Baylor kind of coming out of nowhere. I mean, uh, it's usually teams have something to prove against Kansas. Usually Kansas is the one with the target on their back in the Big 12. This time it's Baylor. And, you know, KU definitely wants to go down to Waco and, and spoil it just a little bit, if not a whole hell of a lot. Right. And uh, after this game, each team has four games left in conference play. KU would return home to play Oklahoma State on Big Monday, and then they would face K-State on uh, Saturday the 29th in Manhattan. And uh, that will be a big game for K-State, their first since – uh, the brawl that happened last uh, month, and uh, even though K-State's not that good, you'll get the best showing you possibly can out of K-State, and certainly will have a lot of energy in that building. TCU comes to Lawrence after that, and then Texas Tech on the road for the final game of the regular season. Texas Tech still a very good team, and Lubbock has become one of the toughest places to play in the entire league. For Baylor, they finish out to get K-State at home, then they travel to uh, Fort Worth to take on TCU. They get Texas Tech at home, and then they have a road game at West Virginia on the final day of the regular season. And Baylor had their way with West Virginia last week with an 11-point victory. So, Tom, down the stretch here, after Saturday's game, if you give me a choice of the schedules, I'll, I'll take Baylor's path to a Big 12 title over Kansas's. I think. Um, I would say that the Bears – even if they lose this game, are still in good shape to at least share the Big 12 crowd. Right, right. I mean, it's going to be a tough task for, you know, KU. It's, I mean, it's a lot. I'm kind of asking, I wouldn't say asking a whole lot, but to go win in Waco and then finish perfect on the rest of the season, 
Uh, I mean, that's a daunting task for anybody. Um, and, and, you know, I would agree that Baylor maybe has an easier road. You know, they play KU at home, uh, and then just the rest of the schedule looks a little bit like an easier path necessarily. Um, but, yeah, I could, I could see, I mean, KU, if they beat Baylor this weekend, then I could see them sharing the title. But, I mean, at this point, the way that Baylor's playing, I mean, if I had to put my money down, on anything, I would definitely still be putting it on Baylor. Yeah, I would too. I like Baylor to win this game Saturday, um, personally, but I think that KU is going to go in and play much better than they did the first time around when these two teams met. But uh, seed-wise, here's the other thing too. Not only are both these teams, no matter what Saturday's outcome is going to be, with KU on an 11-game winning streak and Baylor on a 23-game winning streak, even if they both lose, you're still talking about both these teams playing, being one seeds, and probably both these teams still getting preference when it comes to the NCAA tournament seeding as far as location goes. Right now, if the NCAA tournament started today, Tom, your one seeds would probably be Baylor, Kansas, Gonzaga, and San Diego State. And KU's the only Midwest team of those four. They're likely still going to go to Indianapolis. Baylor, the only South team of those four. Still going to get the trip to Houston. So um, this is all about the Big 12. Both these teams, you take care of business, everything you want for that NCAA tournament. The, the region, the one seed, everything is still ahead of you. So if you split this title, or even if you're in Kansas's case, let's say that you don't win the whole thing at all, um, there's no reason to be discouraged because you still have the path you want uh, for that run come March. Yeah, for sure. And then, I mean, taking all that info, I mean, coming back to it, it is a pride game. Uh, and probably more so for, for Kansas at this point because, you know, Baylor came in to the fog, one where it's not easy to do. And, and you know, now KU is, you know, wanting to go and return that favor down in Waco. Uh, I, they, you said it, you like Baylor, I like Baylor. But it, it's not impossible in, in my mind for KU to come out and, and be the good old KU that we know and, and pull this off. When you look at the uh, Big 12 teams and their tournament hopes right now, Baylor and Kansas both as one seeds. Texas Tech uh, should get in as a top nine seed somewhere in that range. West Virginia should be in the top eight or nine seeds, I would imagine. Um, they have some quality non-con wins. West Virginia does. Oklahoma is in that 9-10 line right now. And then Texas is going to need something to catch on towards the end of this season here. Because in Texas's circumstance, Tom, they have a, a very interesting situation here the next couple weeks for the Longhorns. Because they could go on a run and get themselves in the NCAA tournament and get themselves well enough in the NCAA tournament where they don't have to play in the first four if they finish out this season strong and get a couple wins in Big 12 play. They still control their own destiny as far as that goes. But for Texas, the other realm of this where this could go wrong is uh, Texas could be in a circumstance where they show up like they did uh, a couple nights ago when it was half full and they got blown out by Iowa State uh, there at, you know, what was it, 81-52? I guess that game was on the road, but the next game against TCU, that place was half full and they won that game. But with that being said, um, Texas – Basically, they get to kind of determine, do you want to get gritty and try to make a run and make that NCAA tournament? Or they can throw in the towel right now, 
give up on the season and get Shaka fired. Really, it's up to them how they want to approach these next few games uh, going forward. Yeah, they, that is an odd predicament because, you know, you make the tournament um, and obviously Shaka is going to stay around. If you, I mean, I, I think it's kind of common common knowledge here that if Texas ends up missing the, the NCAA tournament, I, I mean, you've got to think Shaka is gone. And, and so, I mean, surprisingly enough, you know, as, as far as that whole Shaka smart, you know, that whole ordeal, um, are you – I mean, color me shocked a little bit. If when they made that hire, I thought great hire for Texas. I mean, they got their guy. They paid him a a lot of money, a, a, honestly, a ridiculous amount, uh, and and they haven't done anything with it. Um, and so, I mean, maybe if they make the tournament and lose in the first round, maybe Chuck is still gone. Yeah, um, they probably would have made a change last year, but they spent so much money on football and Tom Herman that they decided not to and to go ahead and give Shaka another year because of how much money he's owed. But that's one where um, there were so many teams wanting him out of VCU. He was offered the UCLA job, the Indiana job, you know, some big-time programs turned that down. In Texas, it felt like they stole Shaka Smart from some of these programs that really wanted him. And his system just has never really worked out. He's never really got that to work there in Texas, which blows my mind. I thought that they were going to be – in the upper echelon of the league every year that they found a star in Shaka. We all thought it was a great hire, but it doesn't seem to have worked. Um, with that being said, when you look at these coaches, who's likely to be gone next year? I think Shaka's probably the only one. Iowa State's had so much success in the Big 12 tournament as of late. I think Steve Prom gets another shot at it, despite them being disappointing this year. Even with having a future lottery pick in Halliburton, I think that they've had too much recent success to make any change there. I know Oklahoma State was disappointing this year with Mike Boynton, but they've got so much stuff going on behind the scenes and this NCAA stuff. I would bet that his job's safe and he gets another shot. Bruce Weber's won the Big 12. I know that they're in last place, but that's still uh, a program that Bruce has done a good job for the most part with some peaks and valleys, and this happens to be a valley right now. But other than that, that's the only change I really see happening. Uh, Jamie Dixon is TCU. He's gotten them to their highest point in a long time, getting to the NCAA tournament a year or two ago. I know it hasn't been a great year for them, but uh, Jamie's just fine. I don't see them. I think they're pretty happy considering where they were before Jamie showed up of how bad they were. Um, Shock is the only change I really see happening, possibly happening this offseason, Tom. Yeah, I think so, too. And uh, you know, if you talk to any K-State fans, it's really a love-hate relationship with Bruce Weber a lot of the times. It's just when you think he's about to be gone, K-State makes the Elite Eight. I mean, it's it's always one of those things. Just as soon as he gets on the hot seat, K-State just plays out of their mind. Uh, Mike Boyton, there's a lot to come for this Oklahoma State team. Uh, I mean, young coach, young team, kind of led by Lindy Waters there. Um, I mean, there's a lot to be hopeful for, for Oklahoma state, you know, Cade Cunningham coming in, uh, one of the better recruiting classes that I can remember coming in next year. So, I mean, next year is really the year for Boyton to, to really show, Hey, this is my team, uh, belong in Stillwater. This is, you know, that's going to be, a uh, it'll be one of those years that we, you know, look back, a, a kind of a make or break, you know, you have all the pieces in place. You've been here to, you know, this would be. This would be the what the third or the fourth year next year for Mike Boyden, so it'll really it'll really be interesting to see how Oklahoma State does next year. But 
as far as coaches gone, Shaka, I agree, would be the only one that I can think of. And, and if they make the tournament, maybe still might not even be gone. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, great point there, Tom, uh, of uh, of what you had to say there. I, I think that Oklahoma State's future is bright. And uh, Cade Cunningham, that guy, uh, is going to be something special that uh, Oklahoma State's about to pick up next year. we got a whole lot more to come here on the Jones Report today. Coming up next... We're going to let you hear from Ryan Black. He covers the K-State Wildcats. We'll get that perspective on what on earth is going on in Manhattan with that K-State crew. And then we'll also get his thoughts on the Daytona 500, what happened there, and uh, look ahead to the rest of the NASCAR season with him. Coming up later on in the show, I want to talk some more XFL. Week number three of the XFL is here. We'll kind of give you some insights on that and look back on where the league is at so far. And also got our Tom Fullery story of the week as well. A whole lot more to come as we're rolling along here on the Jones Report this week. Tyler Jones, Thomas Bridges here with you. Ryan Black joins us next. Joining us now on the Jones Report this week from the Manhattan Mercury. He covers K-State football and basketball at large. It is none other than Ryan Black who is back with us once again. Ryan, always a pleasure, my friend, to uh, catch up with you. What's uh, happened in your world, my friend? Well, Tyler, you know, just uh, it's really never a dull moment, you know, here in Manhattan that you're doing things, you know, because between, you know, the Kansas State sports, like I do primarily focus on football, men's basketball. You know, I go to women's basketball at times. I went to a couple of soccer games this past fall. Went, I mean, I'm going to go to some of the baseball games when they come here, you know, because they're right now on a 10, 10-day road trip in the state of Texas. Uh, their game, uh, you know, this will go up after we, we talked about it, but they were supposed to play a game thursday and it got canceled because of weather but uh like i said between that and then you know i have a new writer who just started last week his name is tyler Kraft. he's covering uh he's covering the high schools and he's kind of taking over the women's basketball beat like his predecessors have done so i'm kind of getting him worked into things he's a mizzou grad uh worked as an intern at the indianapolis star so that's something he could talk to you about if he ever came on getting to cover the indy 500 last year because i know when they they uh, bring in their interns. They they kind of turn them loose at at Indianapolis Motor Speedway and let them have have their fun with that. And then, you know, it's just been a big deal for me this week because, um, you know, the the APSE Award Associated Press Sports Editors, you know, put out uh, you know their contest results, and uh, I placed in the top ten in four different writing categories. Which, uh, like I said, we won't know where where we place until later in terms of you know because. What they do initially is they they name a top ten just just they show who who actually made the cut and then from there later they'll announce who who finished you know first through tenth so um, it's just a huge honor you know because Tyler it's it's kind of considered the 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 mecca of of sports writing uh, in, in America to, to even be honored so to to be tied for the most writing awards this year is just uh it's amazing and uh, I'm just very blessed and, and I'm, I'm thankful to be doing what I'm doing. So thank you for having me on. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Glad to see that uh, you're doing so well and being recognized like that. Well-deserved to uh, you and your staff uh, to be honored like that and uh, continuing yeah. the great legacy there at the uh, Mercury. Yeah. Uh, and, and, go ahead. And thank you for bringing that up. I do want to make sure that I mention, you know, we had one of my former writers, Justin Scano, who's now covering the Mets. He placed in features as well as Greg Woods who's a student journalist who's worked for the Mercury for quite a while. Uh, and then we also are named a top 10 website. So it's like, I mean, obviously the personal accolades are, are, are great, but like I said, it means a lot to me too, because as being the sports editor as well at the paper, 
uh, seeing our staff and seeing our website recognized is just it, it's just so humbling because Tyler, I mean, I'm sure that you you know you've been around the block a little bit and you've seen look at how much great journalism uh, goes on around the rest of the country and yeah. so for the for the Mercury to be recognized with some of those names that have just been there for so many years is uh, is a very big deal to me. It's very meaningful and and I'm just happy that also I've been able to have a hand in a few younger journalists who've been with me for very short times. So they end up moving onward and upwards. So that's that's just a nice little feather in my cap, too. Well, you guys work hard. I'm glad to see that hard work pay mm-hmm. off and be recognized in, in uh, that regard. I, I got to tell you, uh, and and maybe I shouldn't tell this or not, but I'll go ahead and say it anyway. That This guy, uh, the big example I saw of, of Ryan's work ethic was uh, back at the Kansas race back in May last year. Uh, he had just hired somebody to fill a position, and he wrote back all the people that applied and told them the good things they were doing with their jo- with their application and some of the things they could work on. I have never applied for a job where I've had somebody do that to me. And so the attention to detail, if he was doing it in that, for people that you weren't going to hire, Ryan, uh, that, that to me, I, I thought that said a lot about you, and I wish more people would go with that approach uh, like that when uh, applying for, for jobs like that to get those responses. Well, and Tyler, let me make sure. I mean, I appreciate you saying what you said, and I will say I, I contacted about ten to fifteen people who I felt were good enough. You know, in terms of like if just one thing had been different that I would have hired them. I will say that again. So I just want to make sure I at least put out there. I mean, it would be nice to say that I literally did respond to every single person. But but Tyler, we had so many people who applied uh, last year for that job. Um, there were just some people that just honestly, you know, they just really did not have a shot. So I was not going to reach out to them. But I did reach out to the people who I thought were very, very good and could have been, uh, definitely could have been in in the position which I hired for. And, and, and to your point, all of them uh, who I who I messaged got back to me and they just said, "Wow, Ryan, uh, we really appreciate it because it's, it's what you said. It's that just so few jobs nowadays. You really keep you abreast of where you stand, and then obviously you hear about someone getting hired, and, and you never even know if they really looked at your stuff seriously. So I just know because I, I view it. Tyler in this way, and this is why I do it, is because I know what it's like to, to apply for jobs and then literally never hear anything. Right. And then see someone tweet out, I got this job. And so it just means a lot to people. Uh, it seems like when you get back to them and at least kind of let them know that, okay, you didn't get the job, but here are things I liked and here are things that maybe you could improve upon, whether you apply for this job again or whether it's another job you apply for down the road. So I, I appreciate the, the kind work. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. And before we dive into too much shop, we got uh, some unfortunate news today. Uh, Mac McClure, who had uh, done some freelance work for you there at the Mercury, did the uh, Prairie Post and a few other things. He was based in Manhattan, covered K-State and the Chiefs. Uh, he passed away. I, I didn't know Mac that well. I met him a, a few times, but he was quite the character and uh, gone away too soon. Another one we lost to a cancer unfortunately and just happened to be his birthday as well as from what i read here yeah no like i mean he gosh i couldn't even tell you how long his relationship with the paper goes back it 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 far predated me um you know but when i got to the mercury in october 2017 uh you know he was already doing some chief stuff for us you know specifically uh, you know when when opposing players would come to arrowhead stadium who were k-state alums you know, we usually tried to get him to write a notebook or a sidebar on them. And uh, the one thing I can say about him, he, he, he sometimes, Tyler, was not the easiest person to work with. Uh, not, not, not in a negative way, because he, he was always happy to cover stuff. He loved her. It was just that sometimes, you know, he, he was such a stickler for things. Like he would send you a story and then send it six more times because he kept, kept, kept catching typos that he made. 
But he, uh, like, at the end of the day, he was just someone who was super passionate for sports journalism, and it's just, it's just an awful situation. You know, like, he was gone way too soon, and uh, it just seems like he really kept the severity of it away from just about everybody outside of his closest family members. Because I, I didn't hear anything about it till yesterday when his, his sister emailed me early in the afternoon on Wednesday and said that they had moved him into hospice care. And then, like I said, she emailed me this morning and said that he, he died around 10.30 last night. So just a very unfortunate situation for sure. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt about that. Uh, Ryan, uh, I, I just got back from the Daytona 500, and I know with you being the big NASCAR guy you are, yeah. uh, first and foremost, that, that Ryan Newman crash, uh, before we talk anything about that race that happened there, Man, that just terrified me. I, like many others, I thought we had lost Ryan uh, with the way that that you know, went down at first, uh, not getting a response, and then waiting hours and hours. I thought he was gone. And to think that here we are, what is it, three days later now, and he's back at home in Charlotte, he's walking around, hanging out with his daughters and everything. Really just a miracle that we've seen uh, that Ryan Newman is not only still with us, but in the condition that he's in uh, based on just all that transpired. It felt very similar to uh, Dale Earnhardt back at 01. No, well, and to your, like you're just mentioning right there with, when Dale Earnhardt died in 2001, even just the mood around the, you know, the, the TV booth as they signed off seemed so somber that it reminded me a lot of, of the way things were in that 2001 race, you know, where DW, uh, who's now retired his first year out of broadcasting since then, uh, that he, you could just tell he, he feared the worst about, about Earnhardt's wreck. And, and obviously that, that unfortunately came to pass as well. And that was just a conflicting day for him, right? Cause I mean, that's the day his brother finally won a race for the first time in his cup career, winning the 500 and driving for uh, Dale Earnhardt. And, um, like I said, I, I, I'm, a, I'm in the same camp as you, Tyler. I, I really thought just based off the replays and just the way it seemed like NASCAR was handling the situation, you know, with putting up, kind of the, the black fencing and stuff where people couldn't see, uh, you know, as they were getting him out of the car. I really just thought that, um, like you said, it was it, like we were going to get news that he, he had died. Uh, and it's just, uh, you know, I want to say, you know, that it obviously was partially due to the safety of the car. It certainly is part of that. But I think it also, he just, he, he was very fortunate, you know, because we've seen a lot of really bad wrecks over the years, you know, Tyler, ever since Earnhardt died and, uh, the thing to me that just changed it was different about that one was that, I mean, for instance, you know, think about the wreck where Austin Dillon took out the catch fence there. Mm-hmm. That, I guess it was the July 2015 uh, summer race uh, there. And, you know, what, what was so different about this wreck was that, you know, he, he was already airborne, then he landed again, and then that's when Corey, you know, Corey LaJoy came through at full speed and hit him back in the air on the driver's side. Right. And so it's just, like, it is a miracle that, that he's alive and um, and that's the other thing, you know, if you look at the photos and the videos, Tyler, the thing that I can't believe is that he looks unscathed. Like, I would at least thought there would be some bruises or maybe he'd have, like, a cut on his forehead. But, I mean, he, you would have just never been able to imagine that a guy who was in that kind of wreck would be doing it seem, seemingly as well as he is this short after the wreck. Yeah. At, at this point, I wouldn't expect him to be out of the car that long, which yeah. just seemed like it was a crazy idea that – uh, if he was ever even going to race, let alone, uh, you know, if he was going to be alive, per se. Uh, so, yeah, this is uh, something else, and so great to see him make the progress that he's made. But 
when you look at this stretch of the last 19 years, no one in NASCAR's top three series has passed away since Earnhardt back in 2001. Yep. Yep. And the technology has taken such giant strides, whether it was the safer barriers or the Hans device, whatever it may be. You know, we've had several different race cars now, and uh, I believe they're on the Gen 7 is what they're driving now these days. Um, I mean, credit to NASCAR for this step that we've gotten to this point in time where Earnhardt's crash was bad, but we've seen so many that have been much worse where we're just, you know, I guess grown accustomed to. We're, we're uh, you know, given we, we've come to a point where we just expect these guys just to walk away now, uh, which wasn't the case just as recently as the 90s. No, and, and you're right in terms of the fact that there have definitely been some wrecks that seem like they look as bad as Earnhardt's, but because of, like you, you mentioned, the safety advancements that, that were kind of mandated after he died that's the reason that we haven't had another person join him uh you know in, in dying during a race and uh, you know Tyler, the one thing that also needs to be said is that you know as safe as nascar has tried to make it uh, you know that there's auto racing it just its nature is not anything you're ever going to be able to make 100 percent safe you know because like i said you just you can't keep these cars from getting airborne you know when they're going 200 miles an hour and um it's just one of those things where again we we as as a racing you know fans and what have you have been very fortunate that that no one else has died since Earnhardt and you know really the even more dangerous one and we don't really talk about it here but man the open wheel racing I mean I know they've tried to do more to make the, the cockpit a little less uh likely to get someone hurt but it's it's man it is it's one of those sports that you just have to know that that kind of anything can happen at any time and you know, you might not be able to walk away. But, like, the, thankfully, every single wreck since Earnhardt in, in, in NASCAR's top three series, they've been able to do that. So that's just huge credit to NASCAR. Sure. Yeah, no doubt. And before all this Ryan Newman stuff, Ryan, it seemed like that this race was one of the best Daytona 500s of all time. Uh, that finish being the second closest ever, Denny Hamlin uh, coming away with that win. We saw all the cautions leading up to this, going to double overtime and everything. What a great race. I know it had a, a bad feeling towards that finish to, to go to end like it did, uh, but everything else was, was just incredible. Even with it being pushed to Monday like it was, uh, everything turned out to be a, a really good night for uh, for the racing action uh, at Daytona. No question. And I, and I guess I wish, you know, you know so many, they had just so many wrecks. Uh, you know, during the race Monday that I hate that some of the really the, the biggest names, you know, whether it's Brad Keselowski, Joey Logano, I mean, Kyle Busch wasn't even kind of in the wrecks, but he kind of had his, his problems with his car. I just kind of hate that, uh, you know, at the very, very end, a lot of the biggest names weren't weren't kind of around to be able to fight for it. I think Chase Elliott maybe could have fought for the win as well. seemed like William Byron had a very fast car. So, uh, you know, <laughs> credit to, to Denny Hamlin for being able to miss all those wrecks and you know, win not only his second consecutive 500, but now his, his third overall, which, uh, yeah, I'm sure you know puts him in some pretty elite company in the history of NASCAR. Yeah, he's now only behind two drivers all time when it comes to mm-hmm. uh, 500 victories, that being Kel Yarbrough and, of course, the king, Richard Petty. Uh, Jimmy Johnson, his last season, uh, he, he ran up front for a bit, obviously uh, didn't make it to the finish there, but uh, what do you think about Jimmy and his chances this year? Do you think we'll see the 48 get back in victory lane one more time before he hangs it up? I mean, I'll put it this way, Tyler. I will point blank say, and I think maybe the first time you ever had me on, I said this, I don't think he's a legitimate championship contender. Uh, I do think, like I said, he at least wants to be able to end his career with at least one more win. 
if not two, because you know he's at 83 right now. So two more. He's been he's been tied with Cale Yarborough for a while, and he's one win behind Bobby Allison and Daryl Waltrip for a fourth on the all-time list. So I think you know if he can script out a perfect season that doesn't involve a championship, I would think that he would at least want to win the two more races to get him past you know the other the other two kind of legends because he's not going to get to Jeff Gordon at this point. You know because Gordon's at at 93, so I, I do not see an 11 win season coming for Johnson this year, but, uh, you know, I, I just, I'm going to be very interested to watch, like I said, just to see, is he going to be more competitive, or is this literally just going to be one of those years where he just kind of rides around, and every track he goes to for the final time, they're going to give some big send-off. Uh, I, I know that you seemed, even last year, you seemed a lot more bullish on Johnson than I did, and I don't know if that's changed now after this long, long winless streak he's been on. Yeah, I think that he can still uh, come out, and if anybody's going to get out of a slump, it could be Jimmy Johnson. I don't think that he just forgot how to drive uh, mm-hmm. overnight. I do think that you know that Hendrick power is going to come together eventually. I wouldn't be surprised if he f- ends up in the championship four uh, with a couple mm-hmm. wins okay. this season. I don't think he'll win the title, but I wouldn't be shocked if he goes out similar to what Jeff did in uh, his final season as far as that goes. It, it feels like, Ryan, the season kind of really starts this week with the, the race at Vegas and such that there's so much focus on the five you're not racing the stage style racing there at Daytona. You're really just surviving in advance, and you don't care about stage points. Here at Vegas, um, you know, if you finished last at Daytona or if you had a good run at Daytona, none of that matters anymore. You really are starting your championship pursuit this week. Well, and the other thing is too, you know, Tyler, it's just like these restrictor plate races, the, the four of them they have a year, are just so different than any other race, you know, because with that, you're always going to have – that the pack racing and guys are going to be racing in such close proximity to each other. But every other track they go to, I mean, you're going to be able to see guys, if they have a dominant car, they're going to be able to get out to a 10, 15 second lead. And they're going to be able to lap half the field if, if, you know, if they have a long, long green flag run. And so it's like you said, it's like, you know, there is so much attention placed on the Daytona 500 and deservedly so because it's, it is the biggest race in the sport. But like you said, it's just not really a good uh, barometer for who's going to be good the rest of the season. I mean, because hey, think about a couple of years ago when Austin Dillon and, and Bubba Wallace finished one two, like that. <laughs> neither of them ended up coming anywhere close to, to that in the final standings of the season. Right, that was so, it. Um, yeah. who, who do you like to uh, win the championship this year? Uh, my, my eyes, I got Kyle Busch to go back to back. I know that's too. That might even be too easy to pick. But who, who are you leaning towards for this year? You know. I'll be honest. I I really, really, because I mean, you, you see how many teams switched up team uh, switched up, you know, pit crews and crew chiefs and things like that. I think Logano getting Paul Wolf, who for my money is probably the second best crew chief in, in out there outside of obviously Chad Canals. I, I think that's really going to benefit, really going to benefit Joey Logano. And so I think Joey Logano is, is the guy that I would if, if you made me pick that's that's who i think's gonna win the championship this year i like that pick i could see that yep. and uh he's already I got think one wolf, i think wolf i think wolf's amazing yeah and, I, and you know yeah i can't believe that that brad let him go away like that yeah. i, I would have you know just told roger make the other two switch i'm not giving up paul wolf you know i mean yeah but uh but yeah that should be well, a good the combination too, the only other guy I would put up there and of course now he's gone but like to me it'd be canal him and Cole Pern, and now Cole Pern is gone, you know, no longer with Truex. Because, see, I, I want to see how long it's going to take Truex to get used to having another crew chief. Right. Again, you know, so I, I don't know if you – is that maybe for you, is that what I, would 
I agree. Like if, Fern, if Fern was back, would you would you pick Truex? Yes, I was. I was actually thinking that uh, I had in mind going into this offseason, Truex finished the year so well with those first mm-hmm. two wins in the playoff. Man, he's got some momentum. He's got things figured out with JGR, and then he loses his crew chief. And I'm like, usually it takes a year to adapt to a new crew chief. Yep. Um, yep. if you haven't worked together previously. And so that's why I like Kyle to win back-to-back. Um, I think that he's in the prime of his career right now, and he's setting up to be in good shape. Uh, with that being said, let's uh, let's move on, uh, talk some Big 12. First off, uh, what in the world is happening to uh, K-State? I thought this was a team that uh, brought back some talent with Snead and Mulwain and some of these other guys. What what, what happened to the Cats this year? Where, where did it all go wrong for, for K-State, Ryan? Well, you know, Tyler, I'll admit, you know, because they were picked to finish ninth in the uh, the Big 12 preseason poll, and I was, uh, I felt a lot better about their chances than that. But it goes to show you that's why I'm not coaching and making millions of dollars because the coaches are the ones who picked K State to finish that low, just ahead of TCU. And basically, what happened, Tyler, is that you know, everyone knew there were probably, there was going to be some drop off. You know, when you lose a trio like you did with Dean Wade, Kamal Stokes, and Barry Brown, but I think most people expected that. Need was going to step up and be a star who could lead them every single night, and people did not maybe see this coming. That McCole McCole has kind of, if not stayed the same, he's regressed from where he was last year. And you know, from there, there there's just too much inconsistency, uh, really everywhere. Because you know, even Snead, he is their leading scorer, but there are many nights you know, he he scores in single digits, and that's just not going to cut it because they just don't have another consistent scoring option to really bail them out when he's not playing efficiently. Um, so really, Tyler, just the story of there are just so many people they expect to step up into these larger roles. Just because, think about Tyler, with a senior trio like you had last year, they could they could mask so many other problems that, that might be there because they weren't going to make the kind of mistakes in crunch time that this year's team has done so routinely. Um, you know, and I know we're going to probably get into about Cartier Jada and, and all just his maybe issues this season, but I think a lot of people thought he was going to be the, the one-two punch scoring-wise with with Snead. And again, they are at the top in terms of points per game for the Wildcats, but again, the problem is just like just like with Snead, Jada is very inconsistent, and he's one of those players, Tyler, where it's like he, he brings a lot of positives to the table, but man, he can bring a lot of negatives too, and it's just it's just kind of just this combination of all these things, and then when you're in a conference that's as good as the Big 12 top to bottom, those teams are going to expose any weaknesses that you have. Yeah, uh, I remember in the early days of when uh, when we saw Brucey there at, K- at K-State, there was some talent that he inherited uh, from Frank Martin, but there was like a power struggle of sorts. And now it seems like you fast forward here to this 2019 through 2020 campaign, and it almost seems like we're seeing this again. When you see, you mentioned Cartier and some of these guys, there's not, it doesn't seem like, at least from a distance, there's not really that chemistry there. Is that a fair uh, way to evaluate this? That there's just not, this team doesn't have that chemistry that, you know, they, they don't get along like last year's group did in, in that regard? Uh, you know, I don't want to say that uh, in terms of like you're saying like there's just a lot a like a lack of cohesion in the locker room and things. That's that, kind of what you're saying. That's what it seems like from a distance. Am I am I reading too much into that? Uh, well, I, here's what I would say, Tyler, and I'm not saying it's it's not correct. It's more that I think everybody on this team, for the most part, gets along. Again, Jada, you know, I'm sure you've talked about the Fran Priscilla criti- you know, public criticism right. of him on on a broadcast not too long ago. He, he is the one player who I think, you know, teammates 
look at him a lot. Like, you know, what are you doing, man? We're all on the same team. You know, just get your head in the game. So it's not that I don't think there's a cohesion. What it is, Tyler, it goes back to what we were just talking about in your first question about it, is they just don't have that take-charge leader who's an upperclassman right now. Snead does do it from time to time. But, you know, you ask Bruce, you ask other – like, he, he's a quiet guy for the most part. He prefers to let his play do the talking. Whereas, like, last year you had this dominant alpha male leader in Barry Brown who not only was going to go out there and play as hard as he could, but he was going to get on you and be a vocal leader. And right now, you know, Dejuan Gordon, a true freshman, who wears number three, and I think a lot of people maybe think – maybe compares favorably to Barry Brown and, and potentially could be that kind of player going forward. He wants to step up in that role, but, Tyler, you know this, Unless you've got a freshman class like kind of what Duke or Kentucky or KU maybe brings in year after year, it is a bad thing if you're if you're a freshman or the guys who are expected to be the leaders. And that's kind of where this team has got to right now because again, with just uh, again, Snead's kind of quiet nature. Obviously, Maywing is super, super, super reserved and quiet. And then Cardi, he can't really be a leader if you're not on the same page as everybody else at times. So. It's just this leadership, a lot has fallen on the freshmen, and they're doing the best they can. But like I said, it's just not, that's not going to cut it when – and let me make sure I walk this back. You can have, a, you can have a, a, a good freshman class, right? But let's just be honest, Tyler. Like what K-State normally brings in is not the caliber of freshmen that the Duke and the Kentucky and the, like the one-and-done types. K-State's going to bring in some really good players next year as well. But I'm saying by and large – there is a chasm, like a wide chasm between the freshmen that those the blue bloods recruit versus what K State and most of the other teams bring in when they have freshmen. Right, right. That's a great point. Ryan Black yeah. of the Manhattan Mercury joining us right now. Ryan, uh, I, I was of all games for me to miss. I, I did not make it to the first edition of the Sunflower Showdown this year. I was at my yeah. grandma's funeral, and uh, so I missed that game. And uh, I know that you've been covering sports around the country for a long time. Have you ever seen anything like that debacle of the way that uh, that game finished out? And and uh, what was kind of your takeaway when that happened? I know it's been a month ago now, but still bizarre. Well, I mean, I've certainly never covered anything like that. And, I mean, it, it obviously reminded me a lot of the, the you know, the malice, the palace kind of thing. It, it, very similar, at least, thankfully, unlike that one between the, the Pistons and the the uh, Pacers back in 2004. Thankfully, none of the players went up in the stands. But I was worried that was going to happen because, you know, where it was at, and I don't know if you knew this, Tyler, maybe you do, um, but, you know, I was – the, the video that went viral was the one of Riley Gates, who was closest to the action. Like, right. his video, I don't know how many views it ended up with, but, I mean, I think last time I saw it was like 8.5 million or more. I was literally right beside Riley. So I was extremely close to where all this was happening. And just from my vantage point, the thing that worried me the most was I just saw how many K-State players seemed like they were trying to get back there and get with Silvio D'Souza and maybe do some more stuff. And I just was very very worried that it could escalate because also the fans were sitting right there behind it. And I was worried, what about if one of them does like what the Detroit fan, uh, the, the Detroit fans did to Ron Artest, and, or of course, you know, now Meta World Peace, but when they threw like a drink on him and then that's what made him jump up in the stands and then start doing what he did. Cause I, that's what I'm kind of saying is like, it looked really bad. It was bad for college basketball. It was bad for the Sunflower Showdown. It's just, it's just bad all the way around, but I'm just thankful it wasn't even worse. And that we're not even getting into the fact that it spilled into the stands where it, it's you know reserved for handicapped spectators. Right. So it was just it was a very embarrassing scene all the way around. Yeah, and they have another matchup next week in uh, Manhattan. Silvio De Souza 
He's not going to play that game. He is uh, still suspended. Do you think there's going to be any carryover? Do you think this is going to linger? Obviously, it's going to be the leading storyline going into this game, but do you think these guys are on either side are going to play with a chip in the, on their shoulder heading into next week? I mean, Tyler, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think there's any question. I mean, because you know, at this point, that's really all K-State's got to play for now, right? I mean, it is um, barring an unbelievably unforeseen run through the Big 12 tournament. Again, K-State season's over. As soon as they lose the Big 12 tournament, it is over. And so beating KU, uh, you know, is really, to me, like the only thing left this season they can really do that would uh, keep it from being just a completely unredeemable disaster, you know, going from first to worst. Because that's where they are right now. I don't know if we mentioned this, but last night, or let me, again, knowing that we're recording this Thursday, but Wednesday night they lost to Texas Tech. And K-State's 2-11 right now. I mean, they're in the basement. and they, So they, they go from one season tying for regular season championship honors to now a season later dead last in the 10-team league. So I don't think, Tyler, uh, there's any question that, that th- there's going to be some lingering things uh, from that game. Because, I mean, Tyler, look at what the history of this series. I mean, you know, Barry Brown said he threw down that, that dunk as time expired last year when, K, when K-State won because he was still thinking about that Brandon Green dunk from a few years before. I mean, this series just has this kind of deal where things just linger, and the players have long memories. Players have long, long, long memories. And certainly, I mean, the environment for the fans, I mean, not that it isn't always very heated and a fun environment, but, man, just given the way the last game ended, there's no question that the environment at Brainless Coliseum for that game is going to be insane. I had to ask the obvious question, but we, we still needed to uh, get the answer. Sure. So, <laughs> oh yeah. With, with that being said, I know that uh, KU's got a big game against Baylor this weekend. You've seen both teams play. This could be the uh, Big Twelve title at stake. Potentially two number one seeds. What do you think about that matchup? As uh, these two uh, are set to tangle this weekend down in Waco. Oh, I mean, you know, I've seen both both the teams, like I said Tyler, and it's just. Gosh, it's just hard to pick against Baylor right now, isn't it? I mean, they just they just look so, 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 so good, you know. And what makes them so great is that you know, and, and if you if you've watched or heard or talked to uh, Scott Drew enough, what makes them so great is they don't have this guy that they say, hey, you got to go out and get twenty points night for us. They have multiple players that just on any given night they're going to get you between ten and twenty ish points. And and when you play the kind of defense that they play as well. Uh, gosh, I mean, you can see why, you know, they're number one in the country. And, and I believe now, correct me if I'm wrong, they're on a 24-game win streak. You know, since That's that, correct. That one loss they had to Washington. So, not that I don't think KU is going to play well. I think they will, especially given the way that Baylor basically manhandled them in the second half of that game at Allen Fieldhouse, which just does not happen. You know, KU does not get beat like that at home. I, I think they're going to keep it very close. I wouldn't be surprised if it comes down to the last possession, maybe. But I, I just... I think right now Baylor is just playing so well, it's hard for me to pick against them. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I like Baylor. Uh, I know that that doesn't make a lot of KU people happy in my neck of the woods, but uh, they're just too good right now. they got too much of a good thing going, and I feel like it'd be silly for me to just think that that's all going to come to a screeching halt uh, this weekend, but it should be fun nonetheless. Devon mm-hmm. Dotson was out in that second half against Baylor, uh, but we'll see what he can put together uh, coming up on Saturday. Real quick, uh, I know that you know K-State, they're about to start spring ball sometime in the next couple of weeks. What's that been like seeing uh, Climate and company? What what he did in his first year there in Manhattan? Well, I mean, it was it was it was amazing to document. Cause, I mean, there was just so many eyes, obviously, on on Manhattan because of again it being the first year, the post 
post-Bill Snyder era. And, I mean, hey, just kind of like what's funny, you know, we're talking about like the men's basketball team just picked to finish ninth. This, you know, this season, well, so was K-State's football team last summer. They were picked to finish only ahead of KU. And then you see they end up in a four-way tie for third place in the conference. I mean, whatever you think about where they got sent for the bowl game, because, I mean, their fans maybe think they got shafted and, and – as kind of they, they feel K-State always does when it comes to the bowl selection process. But, uh, I mean, there's just no question that they exceeded every reasonable expectation you possibly could have had for last year's team, right? Because, uh, I mean, I just think it, just getting – okay, I just think the thing is most people would have thought just getting to a bowl last year would have been an amazing accomplishment. But not only that, I mean, they won eight games, so Clemens had a single-season record for a first-year K-State head coach. And then, of course, they had the only regular season win over a college football playoff participant in Oklahoma so you know what are they gonna be able to do for an encore I mean again they're gonna have to I mean they're replacing kind of their two top running backs because both of them were grad transfers and Jordan Brown and James Gilbert but I mean bringing back Skylar Thompson is a pretty big deal and I mean Malik Knowles has shown that when he's actually healthy he's one of the most explosive receivers around and and I mean I'm interested to see you know if Josh Youngblood kind of can become more of a factor in in the offense you know because obviously he was unbelievably good on special teams, especially at kick return. But I think, you know, that's his goal for this upcoming season is to become more of a threat, uh, you know, on some of these sweeps they want to run with receivers as well as becoming a bigger option in the passing game. And then let's not forget uh, that the, the leader on defense they have didn't even, wasn't even able to play last year. Justin Hughes, who, who's not going to be a fifth-year senior, got, you know, an extra year of eligibility because of the fact that he tore his ACL in spring last year. So, um I don't know where they're going to be picked preseason, Tyler. They're, I mean, I'm sure they're not going to be ranked. But, uh, I mean, I think the reasonable expectation is they're going to make a bowl again and, you know, send Skylar Thompson and the rest of the senior class out on a, on a high note. Yeah, uh, I think that they're going to be very good again. Uh, that K-State team certainly surprised me and I think surprised a lot of people. Before we let you go here, i, I got to tell you, we, we talked about this uh, on Twitter a couple months ago. Uh, I am, and you, you did not like me saying this, but Fansville has got to go, Ryan. We need to bring back Larry <laughs> Culpepper, I'm telling you. Fansville. Oh, Lord. Okay, so what's the... <laughs> What's the question? I said that Fansville's got to go. Uh, I mean, oh. get rid of it and bring back Larry Culpepper for this Dr. Pepper campaign. Uh, I mean, Tyler, I like I just can't disagree more. I mean, I just I just think that you know, like I said, I'll, I'll admit, you know, season one of Fansville was obviously to me a lot stronger than season two. But I just felt <laughs> like I felt like they they kind of handed uh, Bobsworth kind of a an impossible script. I mean, like I said, I think you know they they should have they should have made someone else you know the the, the villain at, at the end of the season because I just you know. I, Big fan, I believe, is what what he was called. I just think they should have done something to kind of change it up where he didn't have to play both roles. But uh, I think season one will always be hard to top because how can you get the iconic image of you know the, the evil laugh from Les Miles and he gets electrocuted and put into the cop car? I mean, it, it was a great season. and, and, and But I'm surprised. That you, what is, so what is the, the thing? You think it's lame? What's kind of your, your – I just think it's it? extremely corny. Uh, I liked okay. I liked Larry. I thought he was fine. Um, I just I wanted to see the day where Larry Culpepper would get to you know present the Dr Pepper National Championship trophy. I was still waiting for that day to happen, and now I'm never going to get that. So I feel like my dreams are crushed. I also don't think the other thing too is, I mean, I grew up in Oklahoma and I love Brian Bosworth, but the Boz is a terrible actor. <laughs> I mean, I think he's done fine in this. I mean, I, I'll do this too. I, just because we're on the topic of the Dr. Pepper stuff, 
do you think they should make it required when they do the, those football tosses for uh, the scholarship? Should they not make them throw it football style? Oh, absolutely. I get so pissed when I see the underhand toss. And not only that, but the fact the underhand toss wins every time uh, yeah, infuriates me. Too. Oh, that infuriates me. I uh, I immediately switch the channel if I see the uh, underhand toss or the chest pass going on. And you know what's funny? I, I can send you the link, or maybe you even read it here a few months ago, because I guess it would have been leading into the, the Big 12 championship game where Dr. Pepper obviously is a major sponsor. Uh, the Ryan McGee, you know, the, yes. who covers a lot of NASCAR, he he talked to about six or seven of these people over the years who have participated in these scholarship throws, and all of them to a person said, "Well, hey, I'm not going to take. People can make fun of me all they want on Twitter or say what they want to about me not throwing a like a like a quarterback, not throwing like a technically sound kind of form. But hey, I made the money to help me pay for my education, so I don't I don't regret it. So I, I do understand that point. I'm just saying it bothers me because don't, then don't have them throw football." Right. You know, have them throw like bean bags or something like if you're gonna have I just feel like to me if you're gonna have them do a football toss, they need to throw it like like they're actually trying to throw a football. Right. But based on the way that Lamar Jackson did that uh skills competition at the Pro Bowl, throwing uh a football at a target actually is not that easy. Uh um, no, yeah. <laughs> so That's who knows true. what they can uh, put together. But I, I would like a ban on that and uh going forward we'll see we'll see what they do. I doubt that's gonna happen. Ryan, where can No, people... I don't think it I don't think it will. That, that's one of the things how the genie can't be put put back in the bottle now. Right. There's no going back. There's no going back at this point. Ryan, where can people see uh all your award winning coverage that uh, you and your team are doing at the Mercury? <laughs> Thank you for that plug. Yeah, well I mean my Twitter account is at Ryan A. Black. You know, we also have just like the, the Mercury Sports account, which is at Merc Sports. So, uh, again, that's at Ryan A. Black on Twitter. And then just the Mercury.com is our website. And, and like I said, that's a top 10 website in the country for papers our size. So that's, uh, I mean, I do, at least in that regard, I don't usually like kind of, you know, plugging my own stuff. But certainly, Tyler, it's, it's uh, at least we can kind of back it up with actual facts. So yes. That's, that's always nice. Facts only. That's great. Uh, Ryan, that's right. appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. I'll see you next week in Manhattan, my friend. Hey, thanks so much, Tyler. Appreciate it. Big thanks to Ryan Black for joining us here on the Jones Report today. Tyler Jones, Thomas Bridges, back here with you now. A few more things before we run. Tom, I got to get your opinion on something. A little backstory. There is a video that's going viral about this uh, woman that she reclined her seat back and she asked permission to do so. And the guy behind her, you know, said, "Hey, let me finish my food first. And then he finishes her his food, and she went ahead and you know backed it up. And he didn't like that. And then so he started poking at her chair. And you know, what do you know? It caused a big scene and went viral. And and that woman got written up by the airline, I believe it was Delta, for disorderly conduct. And so now I believe she's suspended from Delta flights and it's become a big deal. And the president of Delta has since released a statement stating that you should ask the person behind you if you should uh, recline your seat if it's okay and yada, 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 you get the idea. So now this has become a big controversy. If you get on an airplane, if you get on a bird, should you have to ask the person behind you if you want to recline your seat? I have an opinion on this, a very strong one, but I want to hear yours first, Tom. What are your thoughts? Do you have to ask the person behind you to recline your seat? 
Um, I mean, I don't think you would have to, but it would be, you know, uh, a nice gesture for sure. Uh, I mean, especially depending on like which flights and how close the seats are together. Uh, I mean, I think that, or if you want a reclining seat, you know, maybe put, you know, no extra charge, but put the reclining seats together in one. So that way, you know, whoever sits, uh, in the reclining seats, you know, kind of knows what they're getting into. Here's my thought process, Tom. If I've paid for a flight with reclining seats, then I get the right to use that reclining seats at that point. I don't feel like I need to ask the person, the passenger behind me that if I've paid for that, I've earned that right to do so. So, um, me being the person I am as Tyler Jones, I am not going to ask permission. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And if they got a problem with it, too bad. Um, I hope that it doesn't turn into a viral video of some sorts, but I'm just going to go ahead and go through with it. Does that make me a bad guy? No, no. I mean, like I said, if you have a reclining seat, then, you know, it's kind of like if you, you know, get a seat with a TV and you don't use it, like, well, why not? Uh, I mean, if that's what you paid for. I don't know if it's any, I haven't been on a plane since, oh, 2015. So, and my dumbass drives everywhere instead, but, and then my seat reclines when I'm in my own car. But <laughs> if I did fly and had a reclining seat, uh, then I would most likely use it. But I mean, I would be cognizant of, you know, whoever's behind me. And try to make it a non-issue, but, you know, you can't please everybody, so right. I would still probably use a reclining seat. Here's my thing. If you got a problem with the passenger in front of you using a reclining seat, there's two other options. You can either buy another seat to stretch out your legs and do it that way, or just move up to first class. You get what you're paying for. You know that ahead of time, that when you pay for a coach seat – that somebody might recline their chair back. That's what you get with what you pay for. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you don't, like I said, if you, if there was just a kind of like a section where you can say reclining seat or non-reclining seat and, you know, maybe you get put in a section if you don't want to, you know, if you don't want someone to recline, then you don't get reclining privileges either, you know, and, and then you just sit in a section with just regular seats. And then, you know, if you want a reclining chair, then, you also have, you know, you could also be on the receiving end of that where someone's reclined back kind of into you. Now, I will add, while we're on the topic. I think you're right. That's a good point. While we're on the topic of airline travel and such, I I do have another take for you, Tom. You know, when you're getting off an airplane, Mm. sometimes you get seated towards the back of the plane and you're not carrying anything. You have no carry-on. You just have checked luggage or nothing, whatever. You, you're just literally just by yourself with the clothes you're wearing on. And you're getting off the plane, and all these people, you know, they're with their families, and they're gathering their bags, and they're taking forever to get off the airplane and such. If I got nothing in hand, Tom, I feel like I can just go ahead and walk off the plane. Uh, I'm not going to cut anybody in line, but I'm just going to go ahead and step out, and I'm going to go when the opening's there to do so. I don't think that's a bad thing. Some people have this idea that you should wait for every single passenger to get off before 
you should walk through the aisle. And to me, I'm just going to take the opening. If I got nothing there, if I got no carry-on, I'm just going to go ahead and go. Am, am I wrong to do so? Um, see, that's a tough one. I guess if you didn't have anything to take, then you would be fine. But usually, I, I mean, I guess maybe some people don't always have carry-ons, but I usually do. Um, and so I guess if you had that, then maybe it would be a good idea to wait. It depends on how deep you are in the plane, I guess. I, I mean, it takes far, I will say it takes far too long to get everybody off the plane than it really should. Oh, yes. It really does. I, I mean, it it is kind of ridiculous, the waiting time after you've landed and pulled in the port. Like, it's... That is a frustrating part where it's like, all right, come on. Like, we don't have to sit here for 30 minutes. I mean, maybe give me like seven to 10 minutes max, and everybody should be off this plane. Right. It, it should move along pretty quickly. Um, you should be able to get off planes pretty quickly. What about babies on airplanes? To me, this is something that, um, just a little backstory. When my sister and I were growing up, my parents did not put us on an airplane until we were much older. I don't think my first flight till I was about like 10 years old and my sister was about six or seven when we flew home to Oklahoma one time. Um, that was the first time that we traveled and you know it was a long time. We were not the kids that were the screaming babies on the airplane. And, and my thought process has been, you know the, the way our parents made us wait, until we could really handle ourselves and behave on an airplane, that's how it should be. If you cannot behave your kid, if your kid's going to be crying on an airplane like that um, and acting up, then don't put them on an airplane. Uh, you know, put that, if you can't put the bib on and get that kid, or a uh, pacifier rather, if you can't put that pacifier on and get that kid to shut up, then don't fly. Go drive to where you need to go. Am I am I rude in saying that, Tom? Uh that might be a hot. That might be a Tyler Jones hot tag. I mean, some people have to fly with their babies, so I get that. It, I will say it is annoying. Uh, drive, people, it, it drive. Can be, it, it definitely can be annoying. Um, but you know, this the great part about that is the the invention of headphones. So I will. It is, I guess, if you could, you know, midgetate that as much as possible. You know, flying with babies, but. Uh, a lot of the time, you know, people don't have any other option. But, you know, it's always is cool to see parents trying to take that extra step and they pass out the bag of candy and stuff and have a little note that says, hey, sorry. <laughs> sorry about this damn baby. Uh, we're doing what we can. Here's some candy or some whatever other right. shit. The, the, but, the biggest problem is when the parent just does nothing. When the parent just sits yeah. there and expects everybody to just deal with it with their kid crying, when you're not trying to get the kid to shut up, then that's the biggest issue more than anything. If you have something come up where you have to fly, there's just really no ifs, ands, or buts about it, and your kid's acting crazy, um, at least do something. That, to me, is what irritates me more than anything. What grinds my gears is those parents that just expect us to be okay with it. Yeah, some people just don't care, or they don't show any... <laughs> I mean, they don't, they, they just like, we're like, all right, well, whatever. They don't show any, you know, care. I don't know what the word would be. They, I mean, they just don't care. And it's just like, well, all right. And you think it would be a, uh, you know, 
at least try to feel bad about it or, you know, take the steps necessary to do what you can. But some people just literally don't care. Yeah. Um, how did people ever travel with kids on a flight with kids before noise canceling headphones, Tom? Right. Yeah, that's that. Uh, I mean, maybe that should be a part of the reclining seats, too, that you get, you know, instead of a drop down air mask, you can also have noise canceling headphones that also drop down. My mom, I was talking to her about this and she said that she gets really frustrated when she goes out to dinner, goes on a date with my dad, my, my parents are in their fifties and they still date. I know crazy concept. Uh, they, uh, when they go out, she says that, um, she really hates it. And, and this has been going on for years. If she goes out for dinner to a nice place, they've made reservations and then they get seated a table away from a family with kids in particular, younger kids, um, that to her, and I totally get this, I'm not married and I don't have any kids, so I can't quite relate to this just yet, but she said that really annoys her and frustrates her because she's made a point to go out. She's clearly on a date with my dad and thankfully not anybody else. Uh, (laughs) I was about to say. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, she's on a date and clearly she's not with kids. She doesn't want to be around kids either. So, uh, restaurant employees, and Tom, you know, you've worked as a waiter and such before. To those listening out there, uh, don't put couples at tables close to kids. At least be courteous. Please be be mindful of that when you're seating people at those at those tables. There should be sections of restaurants of nice places for families and then for for couples. Tom, uh, did did you have any experience in this type of thing before? Oh, yeah, it happens all the time. Or they just let their kid run around and run around the whole restaurant. That's definitely annoying. Uh, but then there's, there's, you know, people with kids that, uh, you know, some of the time they're, you know, well-behaved. And uh, from that side of it, I mean, eventually you have to take your kids out in public to have, you know, to give them that experience and to know how to behave out in public. Uh, and that's... Uh, that's like a tough, uh, that's a tough one for sure. Just, you know, I've seen parents just, you know, the kids act up and then they just, you know, the mom or the dad takes the kids out of the car and say, well, if you can't act, you know, well in public, then we'll leave. And then they just get their food to go and have the, you know, the other parent pay for it and they, they leave. Yeah. Uh, that get happens a, all the time. And get those a, parents are always, you know, they have their stuff together. And that's always good to see. Right. Yeah. They go home, get a whooping or something like that, you know, and, and that's it. But, uh, with that, I will get off my soapbox and we will move on the XFL <laughs> week. Number three, Tom, I am going to go see your St. Louis battle Hawks on Sunday in the first professional football game in the dome since the Rams left town. And I am so hyped about this. I feel like I, I need to pay my respects to the Rams while I'm there. Um, you know, may, maybe do something for them. Maybe for the Cardinals, too. Uh, the great history of uh, pro football in the city of St. Louis. I'm just wondering, Tom, uh, what city are the Battlehawks going to move to next? Uh, maybe, hopefully, Tulsa. Uh, if they're <laughs> going to move somewhere. But uh, that being said, oh, yeah, we might. Just call up uh, our friend uh, Amy Smith and get a get a Kurt Warner jersey on express shipping. I bet there'll be a few people wearing those. Uh, at the oh, game. you know it. Yeah. 
Um, the crowd is expected to be incredible there. They're, it, they sold out the lower bowl. They're not selling tickets to the upper bowl. But, Tom, the tickets for this Battle Hawks game are going higher than tickets for Rams games did at the end of their tenure there in St. Louis. Yeah, thanks, Stan Kroenke, <laughs> for running the team in the ground. Well, so and, you get up to them. And um, the D.C. Defenders, their tickets are not cheap either. They've been selling out. They sold out their first two home games, and uh, their tickets uh, on the on the market are running as low as like forty bucks. Comparably speaking to the other pro football team in Washington, their tickets are about five or ten bucks on the secondary market right now. So, um, fan attendance was up week two. Ratings kind of settled in. Um, you know, they're averaging about two and a half million viewers per game, which is pretty good. Still beating the NBA in uh, both local market ratings and national ratings. These first two weeks, Tom, I, I would consider to be successful for the XFL. Um, probably better than expected to be at this point. I think so, too. And, and you know, for them, they're not competing with any other football league. You know, college football is not, you know, going, obviously, and neither is the NFL. So, I mean, it's, you know, the perfect time. And, uh, you know, the the way the rules are set up make it a lot more exciting than when we had arena football. I'm just wondering when we're going to get uh, a video game out of this. Oh, I can't wait to play XFL 2020 on, on the Xbox One. Um, right. What they ought to do, Tom, is they ought to put these XFL teams in Madden like how 2K has some of the international teams in it and the WNBA or FIFA has so many soccer leagues that's what they should do is uh, put these XFL teams on Madden. I bet they do. I mean, I bet by, by the time August rolls around, I bet that's added into Madden. Or I bet that there are plans for that, I'm sure. Because that would, that would be great. Because like on NBA, I think it's NBA Live that you can play. Um, I guess maybe 2K has it now, too. We can play the WNBA. But I remember NBA Live uh, 19, I believe, had the WNBA on there. Um, so yeah, that would be definitely something. I guess we probably won't get a, a video game out of it until there's probably more teams because right. there's what eight now. Yeah. Um, but if you can remember long enough ago, there was an arena football video game. Um, and I remember you could hit people and they would go flying over the out of bound boards and you could even play all the way back as the Tulsa Talons. The Talons. I, oh, RIP the Talons. Um. <laughs> yeah, right. Man, those were some fun days with the Talons. I went to a couple games at the uh, convention center, watched the Talons play. Oh, yeah. Um, they were a good I, show, actually. Yeah, it was. Now, I don't even think arena football is still around because they had the, the L.A. team that was uh, sponsored by Kiss, and they had those jerseys that yes. looked like they had flames on them. They, uh, they actually, the a arena football league just went out of business, actually, uh, recently. Uh, that was a whole big deal. Um that uh that went through that situation but with uh with that being said tom uh these this xfl these rules i gotta tell you i i'm a i I like these rules the conversions are interesting although it seems like nobody's hardly converting them though (laughs) Uh, i like the concept of the one point and two point and three point try but it seems like these guys can't even convert them most of the time Right, it'll be interesting. I mean, I don't think the NFL would stray away and try to 
system and, and I mean, I guess the NFL, the rules, some of the rules are so archaic that, I mean, they won't even change the overtime to go like college football when that should have been done years ago. Right. Um, right. I mean, at least give both teams a shot um, or just play the whole overtime period and who's ever leading at the end of the overtime. At least do something like that. Um, that being said, too, though, the... It is hard. I mean, is, I don't know if any has anybody attempted the the three pointer from ten yards out. I don't think anybody's attempted the uh, three point try just yet. Uh, still waiting to see on that, and we haven't seen overtime yet of the uh, what is it? The it's like penalty kicks, but instead it's two point conversions. Uh, I, I'm still waiting for XFL overtime. I think that'll be exciting to see how that plays out. Yeah, it will be. That'll be, I mean, it, and it will eventually. I mean, it has to. Um, so that'll be, when that happens, it'll be cool to see how that's going to play out. Tom, I got an idea for overtime, which I, I, I say this idea kind of in jest. Maybe this is, uh, I, I think this is more an experimental thing and like a pipe dream. I don't really think this is the best solution. This is more like just a cool thing. And, and the XFL might be the perfect place for this. I don't know. What about an overtime that is um, the XFL style where it's, you know, the the penalty kicks type format, but what you do is you do the Oklahoma drill where um, it's two on two, you know it's going to be a run play, and then also it wouldn't matter how much film or how much tape you saw on that, it would still come down to that very moment of those two on one side versus two on the other. What about an Oklahoma drill overtime to decide winners of a game? I mean, that could definitely work. Um, I might need some, you know, work out the kinks, but uh, that would be very interesting. You don't really hear about the Oklahoma drill ever being incorporated in anything like that. That was always everybody's favorite drills growing up. Uh, I don't care who you are. As soon as they broke up, you know, the dummies and lined them up, and you know what was coming, uh, you know, the Oklahoma drill, everybody was ready to do it. Oh, the Oklahoma drill was the test of manhood. Um, I hate it. It, <laughs> it grinds my gears that the Oklahoma drill has slowly gone away with uh, some teams in the NFL and college sports and high schools. Like, to me, that was just football. That was, you were a football guy, a football guy's guy, if you could handle the Oklahoma drill. Um, that to me, two boys want to become men. Yes, absolutely. They did. Uh, the games this <laughs> week in the uh, XFL, here's what's uh, on tap. What's coming up, Tom? Um, you have the uh, game that I will be at, which will be the, uh, guardians taking on the battle Hawks this weekend. And, uh, you know, real quick, Tom, you, you being the, the, the St. Louis sports fan, you are, you know, formerly of the Rams, I get it. It's not the Rams, but this seems like a big deal to the people of St. Louis to have pro football. The attendance that's there, the ratings were good. They'll never fill that void, but this does seem like a, just a good moment, at least, uh, for St. Louis to have this team. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. And and for St. Louis, I mean, this is the first time football's been there in a long time. And, you know, Oddly enough, or coincidentally enough, obviously they found finally found something to use the Edward Jones Dome for. Um, probably sh- pretty sure they glad they didn't tear that down. Um, I mean, I will say the parking down there 
is just horrendous. And I mean, just don't go across the river to East Illinois. Uh, is all I can say. Uh, or race that would be East St. Louis, not East Illinois. Uh, don't park over there. <laughs> right. You might not make it to the game. Yeah, you, um, you might that not. Means, right? <laughs> but uh, no, it's it's good for St. Louis to, to get that back. And then you know, with the success of the, of the Blues, that's kind of uh, you know helped that out. Um, and then you really, I'm, I'm surprised St. Louis doesn't have more of a soccer uh, type of vibe to it for the for the city of St. Louis. I. When the Rams were leaving, a lot of people said, well, St. Louis is going to be a soccer city. Well, they, they are getting an MLS team uh, down the road. That was yeah. announced uh, uh, back in, a, in, I believe it was September uh, of some sorts. So that's exciting for St. Louis. They will get an expansion franchise down the road, and that will be a natural rival for Sporting KC. So that's uh, great to see. St. Louis takes on this Guardians team that looks really good with a nice win against the Vipers week one. And then week two was just a disaster. They get pummeled by the defenders. And uh, Matt McGloin, he does a halftime interview with uh, Diana Rossini where he said he blamed the play calling. And then uh, Kevin Gilbride, the New York coach, didn't find out until the start of the second half in an interview with Tom Luganville about what McGloin said. McGloin then throws a pick six, and he gets benched. And to me, Tom, that's exactly what the XFL needs is they need to use this this drama of the fact that they can interview anybody at any time and that they can have the headsets and all that stuff going where they can listen in. They need to build up that, that theater uh, that Vince McMahon is known for the WWE. That's the type of thing that will keep people interested and keep people tuning in. Uh, yes, it sucked for the Guardians and their fans to go through that, but that's what's going to keep me interested is for those type of situations that I'm not going to get in college in the NFL to see in real time. Right. And even with the, uh, the explicit content, or I guess, I don't know if you would call it explicit, but the curse word on live TV, I, I mean, I, for one, I'm all for it. I, I mean, I know it's obviously against the rules, but uh, that, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the Vince McMahon portion of it. Yeah, play that up. Use that to your advantage. I mean, you know, NFL and college, I mean, they can do kind of the same thing, and you can change all the rules you want, but use that specifically uh, to, to build it up, to make it, I mean, don't force it to where it just seems cheesy, but at the same time, use it to your advantage because that's something we won't get from the other leagues. I, I, I love the, you know, the interviews just right after things happen. I mean, you don't, like you said, you don't get that in college or the NFL. And so, and I, that up. I love use Tom. That. I love that. I love it that it's not just interviews after positive moments either. The fact that Diana and some of these others are interviewing people after they've gotten benched or thrown a pick six or had a personal foul or whatever, to me, you're getting these guys being very genuine. And that's what we want to see. I don't want the played-up stuff of everything's just great, everything is uh, in the moment of just happiness. We're getting the best of both. We are still getting that, but we're getting the – hard times as well where these guys are having to open up with what's going on. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, you said the best of both worlds. I mean, it, it's, it's, I mean, the last thing a player wants to do is get interviewed after they get benched. Like, man, Hey, what's going on out there? You really sucked. Uh, how are you feeling? <laughs> like, 
no one obviously wants that, but I mean, you don't get that in the NFL or obviously, you know, college that would not work out so hot. Um, <laughs> even as good as that would be, I can only imagine what things said on college football sidelines. Um, but hell for all it's worth, just mic up everybody, mic up everybody and just take the best of and make a best of list of things said during the game. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, that's my favorite part is, is mic'd up. Yes, no doubt, no doubt about that. Uh, Dallas last week gets a win uh, in Landry Jones's debut, and Bob Stoops and company, they were in a tight game with the uh, L.A. Wildcats, and then Landry Jones, after a horrible start, he threw two picks in that first half. He just looked uh, – I had somebody tell me, uh, who's a lifelong Renegades fan like myself, um, man, Landry just looks like trash. And I'm like, yeah, he's not playing well. And then he flipped on another gear and played excellent in that second half, leading them to a uh, come-from-behind victory and getting that done down the stretch, and they covered the spread and everything. Uh, Landry, Tom, he looked a little out of shape, but he hasn't played football in over a year. Um, I did see him chugging beers in the postgame, which was hilarious. Uh, Another part of that authenticity of this league. Um, But... I think that the Renegades are going to be fine. Bob is a heck of a coach. Landry, if he can, you know, just get in shape and whatever, uh, this this team is going to be just fine. It, more than anything, it was good just to see Landry uh, bounce back after struggling because if he struggled throughout that game, we might be talking about the Renegades on the market trying to look for a quarterback after that debacle the week before with their, their backup quarterback, um, through that first half, it didn't look too promising there for that Renegades team with uh, with Landry's struggles. Right, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, Landry, even you kind of knew he was going to bounce back and, you know, kind of shake off the rust just a little bit and get back in the motion of things. Uh, you know, obviously back up in the league uh, for however long. So, I mean, he, he, knows, he knows how this goes. So, uh, I mean, it's you know, after being out of the game so, you know, so long, I don't, you know, care if you're still in shape per se, just the speed of the game and just the game itself from not playing for so long, or, you know, at least have to take a, a good half or so to shake off the rust to get back in the rhythm. Right. Right. That's a great point. Well, we mentioned that St. Louis, New York game is this weekend. Dallas is on the road at Seattle. Great crowd last week at, uh, at CenturyLink for the uh, Dragons home opener last week. Uh, Houston takes on Tampa. Tampa's just a disaster. Um, Aaron Murray is not a good quarterback, um, even in the XFL. Houston looks like they could win this whole thing. And then uh, D.C. takes on Dallas. I expect Dallas to roll in that game. Uh, but should be fun getting to St. Louis and seeing uh, that opener of the uh, Battlehawks. I still don't know what a Battlehawk is, but I'm intrigued to see ultimately how it plays out with uh, that opener coming up on Sunday. Before we get out of here today, time for our Tom Fullery story of the week this week. Tom, where are we heading? Jones, well, there was a couple of different ones that I've chosen after meticulously going through all these. Uh, we're going to the Golden Arches, and I feel like we've been to the Golden Arches before. McDonald's? But we're going. We are. We are going to McDonald's, and this is a CNN business article. Have you been to, uh, real reads, quick, have you been to the world's largest McDonald's in Vanita? I see. I believe it's now the second largest. I believe there was an, another somewhere, and it's, I think it's in Japan. 
um, that actually outdid that one, but I have been to that one, and then they have the glass glass floor where you can see about you know because you're above the highway um they have that in there cool you know it's definitely a, a stop worth making it is gonna go through Vanita. tom i gotta tell you it's, um as a kid that went to tulsa public schools for like my first two or three years um and they didn't have a whole lot of money to spend we took a field trip to that mcdonald's all right you you went with the the Kawita field trip? No, I said Tulsa Public. Oh, okay. You know, I thought I could have swore you said Kawita there for a second. No, I no, you know, you you know, I didn't say Kawita. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> your title reads: McDonald's is making scented candles that smell like your favorite quarter pounder ingredients. Uh, article: Ever been so hungry for McDonald's you could smell it? It could be your imagination, or it could be the candles. The fast food chain is making a six-pack of scented candles that will smell like your favorite quarter pounder ingredients: a bun, ketchup, pickles, cheese, onion, and beef. It announced. Candles were created to celebrate the burger's nearly 50-year run, and that's not all. McDonald's also released released a line of merchandise that includes mittens, calendars, lockets, t-shirts, stickers, and pins, all for its biggest quarter pounder fanatics. Oh, these are terrible. Um, <laughs> Jones, uh, are you going to get these candles? I think I'm going to have to pass, but part of me does want to just see how they smell. I mean, I would be down. I mean, first off, who in their right mind would burn an onion scented candle in their home? Because uh, it's, I mean, a the, the candles are all different, right? right? I mean, the candles are all different. Like the the bun is like a bun color, the ketchup's obviously red, the onions white, the beef is a beef color, pickles are green, cheese is the yellow. Uh, I mean, if it was all one, I, I still wouldn't burn it in my house. I don't. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I I don't get the quarter pounder anyway when I go to McDonald's. I usually just get a McDouble and fries. Um, and now if they had a McDonald's, I, even then, I don't want my house smelling like McDonald's, but I would, right. it would be funny. It would be funny to get these and then go and put them somewhere and light them in someone's house. And then they're like, Oh my gosh, why does it smell like ketchup in here? <laughs> I mean, you know, that would be a pretty funny prank. I feel like out of the six, the bun one might not be terrible. It might smell like fresh baked bread, which I'm always a fan of. Okay. Um, but if it doesn't, uh, I mean, or, you know, you walk into a room and it smells like pickles. No, no. And, and beef too. It's not like you're, I mean, if you're about to eat some hamburgers or something and, and it, this smells like that, that can be cool, but not for a long period of time. Right. I mean, that's definitely novelty. I would I would get them just to prank somebody to make a whole room smell like onions or right. ketchup. I don't even like to eat in my car when I go to McDonald's. Not that I'm messy. I can, you know, clean up after myself. It's that I don't want my car smelling like McDonald's for the next week. You know, that's how McDonald's I feel like is not that bad. I will tell you what smell lingers forever in a day, especially if you, you know, leave the bag and wrapper in the car. Uh, I mean, we've all been guilty of that before. Or maybe it's just me. Um, Whataburger. 
Whataburger. Will huh? have your, oh, it will have your car smelling like Whataburger for about 20 years. Oh. Uh, that, that is it. Maybe it's specifically because I get the patty melt and there's a lot of grease in there. Right. Uh, but that smell. And it's not a terrible smell, but the thing, I mean, you don't really want to get in your car to go to work and then come in bright and early on a Monday morning and smell like Whataburger. It, it takes away the whole maybe, point maybe of, of getting a shower before you go to work. Right, right. You just get in, and somehow your hair is just as greasy. Like like if you just ran a marathon, it's still just from all the grease content in the air after a good patty melt from Whataburger. I'll tell you what, though, Tom. Um, any day, any day, I'd rather have my car smell like fast food than, like, cigarettes. That is very true. Now, what if they had, like, a... Uh, sm- like a McDonald's, tra- trashy McDonald's people, you're coming in smelling like stale cigarettes and a Big Mac. Ooh, mm. that'd be a bad combo. <laughs> yeah, it would. That's funny. Is there anywhere that comes to mind where it would make sense to have this McDonald's candle? I can't think of one place. <laughs> no, I'm trying to think. I mean, McDonald's, sure, but you already have that in there. And I've... I've First of all, I've never seen a candle lit inside a restaurant or inside a fast food restaurant. That's true. That is. I've never seen that here's in a my good, whole life. Here's a good prank idea. You mentioned like pranks. What about if you went to a rest, another restaurant and you found a way to put that candle, hide it somewhere, and that restaurant smells like a McDonald's, especially like a fine dining place or whatever? And people are like, why? Why does it smell like McDonald's in here? Well, uh, somebody put a candle around, you know. Like that to me would be uh, what this is for. I can't think of any other reason to have this candle other than for for pranks or uh, mischievous work of some sorts. I don't think anybody's going to enjoy that smell. You just take the beef candle and you go into a vegan restaurant and you just light it somewhere conspicuously, perfect, and then walk away. Perfect. I like that idea. Uh, that's the move. I think that's the move we're going with. We're putting this in a vegan uh, place of some sorts, just making it smell like McDonald's and all those people are hungry to uh, really get some real food. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> now we're getting we're getting a one star review from a vegan out there. It's happening. Yeah, and a meatarian has given us a five star review for this, so it's all going to balance out. There you go. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I think we're on to something there uh, to make this work and uh, make it all happen. Tom, I, I think that you have this figured out. I will say, to add to all this, when when I was a kid, Tom, I enjoyed bacon so much and the smell of bacon. I had this thought in mind that I would not mind like dating a girl that smelled like bacon. Oh, God. I don't know about all that. I can only handle so much bacon smell. I couldn't, I couldn't be around good, it 24-7. See, I think if you were around it so often, it would, I think you would become nose blind to it. Yeah. And then it would lose its, it would lose its, it would lose its power. Here, here was the fantasy of like fourth grade Tyler Jones. You ready for this, Tom? I'm ready. All right. Here it is. It, it was the, the ideal woman for fourth grade Tyler Jones, and I've grown up since then. My parents still give me a hard time about this. 
was was a blonde <laughs> with plastic surgery that smelled like bacon. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I can see it now. Instead of plastic implants, you just <laughs> stuff those babies with fried bacon. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Like Breast milk coming out with bacon grease in it. <laughs> It would essentially it would be essentially it would come out as a gravy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dying. I'm dying. Right. <laughs> there you go. What what would uh would that be a a female would that be something you were interested in or would you be looking at that girl like there's something off here? <laughs> yeah, if it just came out as gravy, yeah, I don't think that would work too well. I don't think, I mean, that would, yeah, that would be, we'll save that for a different day. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. On that note, I've said too much. I've told too much about myself and we'll, we'll leave more to the imagination to desire. On that note, we will uh, get out of here. And uh, as always, you can uh, follow us on social media, facebook.com forward slash Tyler Jones live, Tyler Jones media group. Uh, Twitter at Tyler Jones Live, at Thomas underscore Bridges, at TJ Media Group, Instagram, Tyler Jones Live, Insta Thomas, TJ Media, uh, Jones underscore Report. You can find us there. And uh, subscribe to the show, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify. Leave us a five-star review or don't leave us one at all. And uh, we'll see you right back here next week. Big thanks to Ryan Black for stopping by. That guy is the man. And uh, I got to tell you, the state of Kansas is lucky to have a guy like Ryan Black doing a great job uh, for the Mercury uh, covering K-State and all those teams, and, and and we always enjoy talking to him here on the show. Got to run. Next week, we'll have a big-time guest. I can't quite say yet who it is, but you're going to like on who we have on the show next week. That's a tease. That's what we call teasing the biz, so look forward to that. For Thomas Bridges and Ryan Black, I'm Tyler Jones saying so long. This has been another edition of the Jones Report. We'll see you right back here next week. The Jones Report. F*** yeah.